previously on Life on the Ark. The thing is, is you got to go through the human beings. you got to touch their heart to be able to help the animals. That's the only way it's going to work. And that's the same in the whole world. If you want climate change, you want something done, you want thing, you got to touch the hearts of humans to get that done, or it's not going to get done. So it's human-animal in that order. That's the only way things can be taken care of. My name is Kelly Swope. This is Life on the Ark, Part 5, Rebuilding the Ark. Carol Baskin, founder and CEO, Big Cat Rescue. And you know, there was this huge media frenzy after it happened, but there were very few facts coming out. And I didn't put two and two together for probably a couple of days because I get crazy calls from crazy animal people all the time, cursing and swearing at me. But right before this happened, I got a phone call. I was out walking in the sanctuary, so I didn't have anything to write down names or numbers or anything. But the person on the other end of the line was just screaming obscenities. And he was saying, I hate you, but I want you to know you're absolutely right. All of these people are exploiting these animals and abusing these animals in the way that you said that they are. They're transferring them illegally from state to state. They're selling them. They're killing them. And even though I hate you, I wanted you to know that. And then slams down the phone on me. So, you know, I'm just like, well, that's another crazy. And then the next day, I start hearing about this thing that's happening in Zanesville. And it was, you know, a couple more days before I had any kind of real... Uh, understanding of who Terry Thompson was or any of that. And so I believe that it was Terry Thompson during that period of time when he was just about to let everybody out and kill himself that he was feeling like he had to um, expose that industry before he did. Although Carol Baskin had an important part to play in Zanesville's aftermath, about which more later, it seems unlikely, given what Terry Thompson's friends reported about his mental state in his final days, that the CEO of Big Cat Rescue was on the receiving end of a hostile dial from the 740 area code. That said, Carol Baskins is one of those Zanesville stories that resonates without necessarily having to be true. The incident's surreal facts and Terry Thompson's noteless parting invited people to interpret the mystery in whatever direction they fancied. In the release of over four dozen majestic animals from their miserable captivity, Carol Baskin saw one hateful man's doomed embrace of animal liberation. Others, like Baskin's rival Joe Exotic, saw a conspiracy of left-wing activists in the deep state to foist the animal rights agenda on the good people of Ohio. Others still saw a manufactured murder scene, a collage of red herrings that would have stumped even the great Lieutenant Columbo. As soon as the gun smoke cleared, Zanesville became an urban legend that could be retold to support every cause, every interest, every conspiracy theory. 
For those outside of Zanesville, particularly Ohio's exotic animal owners, the most popular murder conspiracy theory places left-wing animal rights activists at the scene of the crime. There is no hard evidence at all to support this theory, but when you talk to Ohio animal owners, it's easy to understand how it lives on over a decade later. Before Zanesville happened, people like Mike Stapleton of Marion County were allowed to own as many apex carnivores as they liked. Mike himself kept five tigers as part of a nonprofit he called Paws and Claws Animal Sanctuary, which he ran alongside his for-profit native animal breeding business. After Zanesville, the state of Ohio forced Mike to give up every last one of those tigers. The overhauling of exotic animal laws in Ohio was so sudden and decisive that for those who forfeited their animals or had them seized by the state, Zanesville seemed like the last episode in a long plot to dispossess them of their rightful property. These crazy incidents were happening just to make it look bad to the people who write the laws here. So then John Kasich takes over and he doesn't act on the executive order. So then they have this really big incident in Zanesville. It just happens to have this incident. And, you know, it's major. And then, bam, Ohio gets hit with one of the strictest laws in the country. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but you just have that gut feeling, you know? And I'm sure there are many others that feel the same way I do. Denise Flores, who had to give up the six big cats she kept at her Tiger Paw Rescue and Rehabilitation Center in Ashland County, also views Zanesville as a manufactured crisis. I really, I think there was more involved in that situation. I think the man was set up. This is only my opinion, okay? But somehow I think that man was set up. Some animal activist group went in there and released those animals. And that's my opinion. What, um, I, what reason would I, they have to do that, in your opinion? And to, it, get, to get that exotic animal law passed in the state of Ohio. As we learned in part four of this series, before Zanesville, the people pushing legal reform were animal activist groups like the Humane Society of the United States and Tim Harrison's Outreach for Animals. The HSUS in particular was able to leverage their influence on factory farm issues to win gains for other classes of animals, forcing the Ohio Farm Bureau and Governor Ted Strickland to come out in favor of exotics reform. After Zanesville, the frontline partners in the coalition to change the laws permanently were Ohio's accredited zoos, conservative police unions and sheriff's associations, and a GOP-controlled state government. Ohio Republicans, in large part, with the backing of law enforcement and zoo industry consultants, spearheaded the effort to pass major legislation in Ohio. How did the coalition that finally got it done come together? 
It started to assemble before the shooting was even finished at 270 Kopchak Road. Muskingum County Sheriff Matt Lutz, who is a Republican, made a televised entreaty to Ohio lawmakers on the night of October 18, 2011. Conferencing with TV reporters as his deputies were still hunting tigers in the dark, the sheriff was asked whether the state had a sufficient permitting process for dangerous exotic animals. Lutz offered his opinion candidly. Well, let's just say it's a little loose in my opinion. And, uh, and we've, we've, we've thought about this, this situation since I've been sheriff, this is my third year. And this has been a bad situation for a long time. And there needs to be some legislation to change on, on how these things are going in the state of Ohio. The sheriff's candid words in the throes of crisis inspired immediate action from a GOP governor who had been dragging his feet for nearly a year. By the next day, John Kasich was scrambling to draft an executive order of his own to try to stop the political bleeding. The governor was defending himself above all against criticisms that he was partly to blame for Zanesville because of his abandonment of Governor Ted Strickland's earlier executive order. Exasperated, Kasich told one reporter who asked him whether he could have done more to prevent disaster, quote, All the statutes in the world don't keep something like what happened from happening. I mean, who would have ever dreamt the guy's going to commit suicide, open up the cages, end quote. On October 21st, two days after the last Zanesville Tiger was shot, Kasich issued an executive order calling on local humane societies and health agencies to do more to enforce existing animal laws. It was an act of brazen caution, considering that the lack of any substantial laws was precisely Ohio's problem. The Humane Society of the United States panned Kasich's order as lacking teeth, pun very much intended. Tim Harrison of Outreach for Animals compared it to someone trying to plug a hemorrhaging artery with a Band-Aid. Former Governor Ted Strickland even threw in his two cents, maligning Kasich's misinformation that his earlier executive order was unenforceable. The former governor did not appreciate the insinuation that he, actually, was the one at fault for Zanesville. For all the heat he took from animal protection groups, John Kasich had the support of the Columbus Zoo and Jack Hanna, both of whom praised the executive order as a step in the right direction. Kasich consulted with Hanna directly about his plans to fast-track a bill through the Ohio General Assembly within a few months. Hanna summarized his call with the governor during his last press conference in Zanesville. Talking with the governor today, when this bill goes through, those that have exotic animals that are listening to this can be expecting a knock on your door here probably in the next several months. Uh, because as long as I'm here, I've been here 34 years, uh, this cannot happen again. The bill to which Hannah referred was just an outline of ideas at the time, most of which were already contained in the Ted Strickland order. By the spring of 2012, the bill was called Senate Bill 310, the Dangerous Wild Animals Act and GOP State Senator Troy Balderson, a Zanesville native, was lead sponsor. Included in the legislation was a prohibition on future trade and acquisition of, quote, dangerous wild animals, a category that included big cats, wild canines, bears, elephants, rhinoceroses, buffaloes, alligators, and many non-human primates. The prohibition applied to individuals without zoo or sanctuary accreditation from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, or AZA, the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, or GFAS, and the Zoological Association of America, or ZAA. According to former activist Kathy Cowan Becker, the Humane Society tried to block the ZAA's inclusion in the bill because of their ties to the private animal trade 
and because their animal care standards were so much lower than the other groups. They're a sort of bronze standard to the AZA's gold standard, Becker says. That effort did not succeed in the end, but even setting the bar as low as the ZAA was still setting it much higher than it had been before. Notably, Senate Bill 310 did not blanketly confiscate animals from individuals who already had them. However, it did require those owners to register their living properties with the state, microchip them, purchase robust insurance, and uphold higher standards of animal welfare and community safety, all costly investments as Ohioans continued to struggle through the long economic recession that had begun in 2008. If owners could not play by the new rules, their animals would be seized by the Department of Agriculture and then taken to a temporary holding facility in the Columbus suburb of Reynoldsburg until the state found somewhere outside Ohio to rehome them. The Dangerous Wild Animals Act reflects the political influence held by Ohio's urban zoos and aquariums, as well as their national accreditor, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, or AZA. With Jack Hanna at the helm of the negotiations, AZA standards became the legal benchmark for commercial zoos, a move designed to put many private so-called roadside zoos out of business. The interests of AZA zoos are very well safeguarded in Ohio's laws, securing their status at the right hand of their government regulators. Another important element of the Dangerous Wild Animals Act is its emphasis on the vulnerability of law enforcement when responding to exotic animal emergencies. Law enforcement organizations, chiefly police unions and sheriff's associations, became major proponents of the bill after seeing the chaotic images from Zanesville. Howard Baskin of Big Cat Rescue, who followed the Ohio bill closely and has lobbied for similar federal laws, says that some lawmakers are moved more by consideration of law enforcement than animal welfare. Some legislators who may not be as inclined toward animal welfare, they are inclined toward not only public safety, but very importantly, first responder safety. Zanesville was the first time that an incident where first responders had to face down these dangerous carnivores really got national attention. And so it, it really brought home for the first time, even though there were many incidents around the country before that, and people got to see the, the role of law enforcement in this unfortunate incident. Muskingum County Sheriff Matt Lutz, who became the public face of law enforcement's support for the bill, concurs with Howard Baskin that the bill is effective in addressing concerns of both animal advocates and police officers. There's a common goal here, and that's the passion for the animals. People want to see the animals taken care of. They want to see the animals as safe as possible. Um, and uh, I think, you know, uh, with that, when you have that in mind, uh, the passion for the animals and the safety of the animals, that's also... The, the, the passion that law enforcement and the union has for our officers and the safety of our officers. And so I think it's a common goal when you're dealing with this because, um, you know, this, this really does go uh, towards protecting the cats and keeping them in an environment that they probably should be in. And it's also helping protect law enforcement officers by uh, no other agencies ever having to hopefully go through what we did. Unsurprisingly, animal owners from around the country, not just Ohio, mobilized quickly to oppose the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. 
the Ohio Association of Animal Owners, the United States Association of Reptile Keepers, and Responsible Exotic Animal Ownership, or Rexano, all sent representatives to Columbus to argue against the bill as it moved through committee. According to Paul Becker, a sociologist at the University of Dayton who studied the bill's passage, many owners criticized the insinuation in the legislation's title that exotic animal ownership was dangerous to public safety, as in this testimony. I have questions of how this proposed legislation can have anything to do with public safety. The animals listed in this bill statistically have far less incidents involving the public than the household dog. Dogs kill, they maim, they can carry disease such as rabies virus or distemper, though they are not on the dangerous and wild or restricted list. Monkeys have never, and I put emphasis on never, killed anybody nor do they carry disease. Rhetoric emphasized on public safety is nothing but fear-mongering tactics to gain public support. The statistics prove this statement to be true. Other owners echoed the views of Denise Flores and Mike Stapleton that animal activist groups were behind the incident that catalyzed the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. People have legally had exotics in Ohio for a hundred years, and the Zanesville incident was the first instance of public endangerment. The first time ever in the whole world that anything like this has happened. And only due to the actions of a supposedly suicidal, insane man? Or was he killed by a radical animal rights activist such as a PETA or an HSUS member who then released all the animals? Seems a little odd that the fences were cut open when the owner would have just opened the doors to the pens. Sadly, we'll never know the truth. I feel the FBI should have been called in to investigate. Those with a large commercial stake in exotic animal ownership emphasized the economic hardship that would ensue from the bill. Thurman Mullet of the Mount Hope Auction said that his auction made $1.4 million annually on exotic sales, a not insignificant sum for a rural business. Polly Britton of the Ohio Association of Animal Owners lamented the betrayal of small exotic animal farmers by corporate farms who did not defend their former allies. Cindy Huntsman of Stump Hill Farm, a former associate of Jack Hanna and Terry Thompson, who bred tigers for Massillon High School, tried to argue that USDA-licensed operators like herself should be exempted from the law. But none of these pleas gained any traction in the legislature. John Kasich threatened to veto the bill if it did not go beyond existing federal statutes. Apparently, he wanted the world to know that Ohio's governor was cracking down. A number of Ohio zoo veterinarians and zoo executives, most prominently Jack Hanna, spoke in favor of the bill as it was being debated. His and other voices carried the day. Senate Bill 310 flew through committee and was signed into law on June 5, 2012, just over half a year after the deaths of Terry Thompson and his 50 animals. The Dangerous Wild Animals Act went into full effect in Ohio on January 1, 2014. By that date, private owners had to have their animals microchipped, insured, and registered with the Ohio Department of Agriculture in order to keep them legally. Few owners were able to swing it financially. Denise Flores did not even wait to see what would happen if Department of Agriculture officials came knocking on her door to ask about her tigers. 
Before the new law had even passed, she started arranging for her cats to go to accredited sanctuaries in Minnesota and Oregon so that the state could not seize them from her. The thought of her cats being housed at the state's temporary holding facility in Reynoldsburg, a barbed wire enclosed, warehouse-like complex that lacks curb appeal, to say the least, was more than she could bear. To me, we wanted to do the right thing and what was best for those cats at that time. And I wasn't going to have the state of Ohio come into my property, start my animals, and drag them down to some prison they have down in Reynoldsburg. I wasn't going to let that happen to those cats. You have no say once the state of Ohio takes possession of your animals. So I just said, I'm not going to wait until it's too late. I want to have all my stuff in place. And I think I was one of the first people in the state of Ohio to relocate my cat on my own. I just went and did it. I called the, the sanctuary. I spoke with them. We, you know collaborated together and how we were going to do this. I saw came in. They helped. They were there when it happened. I had USDA there giving them shots. Um, I had uh, a state uh, doctor there as well. Um, everything went really well for us because we did it all the right way. Denise was saddened, of course, to have to give up her big cats. Yet when she talks about that life-changing experience, it almost sounds as if a burden had been lifted from her, too. No more worrying about maintaining cages. No more costly veterinary bills. No more wondering if the state of Ohio was coming for her property one day. Now, she could rest satisfied that her cats were living carefree lives in larger spaces. I was very pleased with the lives that my cats were living those years. Um, out of all of them, the they've all passed since in the last couple of years or so. But they all live to be like 20, 21, 22 years old. Wow. And um, that's a, a good long time for a big cat. Um, they had the best of care, and they had room to run and roam, and that's all that... I cared about is that they had a good quality life. That's what I wanted. I think that's what everybody wants for these animals. By accepting the new law, Denise spared herself a lot of the anguish that friends such as Mike Stapleton went through by resisting it. After the Dangerous Wild Animals Act passed, Mike joined Cindy Huntsman of Stump Hill Farm and a few other Ohio owners in a lawsuit against the state. They lost the suit and the state issued a warning to Mike that, in order to get permitted, he needed to get his facilities up to the new standards and his five tigers microchipped and fully insured. In the event that he failed to do so, the state would send agents to seize his animals. From Mike's point of view, the entire game seemed set up to dispossess owners like him who did not have the private donor base needed to finance an accredited zoo or sanctuary. He claims that the Department of Agriculture was trying to make it so financially inconvenient for big cat owners that they would just give up. 
Mike paid dearly for his resistance to the new law. On October 5, 2015, almost four years to the day after the Zanesville incident, the state of Ohio sent 30 agents from the local sheriff's department, the state highway patrol, and the Ohio Department of Agriculture to Mike's home in Marion County to seize the five tigers he kept on his property. That morning I woke up to a knock at the door, and it's the Ohio Department of Ag with all their trucks. So I'm surrounded by the police and the Department of Wildlife, you know, guns everywhere. And, uh, of course, I knew what they were here for. And they gave me the warrant and, you know, told me the best thing for me to do was to sign them over. Well, I know what he meant, and I didn't want to sign them over. I mean, I got all these guns, you know, around my house. And I signed him over, but under duress, under the threat of him taking everything of mine. I've seen what the other judges have had problems with these guys, and I wasn't taking any chance of losing my home to the state of Ohio. My wife has rheumatoid arthritis. She's disabled. I'm not putting her through that. And that is the reason why I signed him over. You know, some people said I, I was a coward. You know, they called me names and said that I abandoned them. And uh, that's, that's not true. Everybody's situation was different. I was just the first one to sign mine over to them to take them because I didn't want to take the risk. We had not won one thing against Ohio together. The state's agents left with Mike's five tigers, Clarence, Sher Khan, Kendra, Janiyah, and Keisha, and took them to the temporary holding facility in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. Clarence, a white tiger, had a brief stay at the facility and was rehomed to a wildlife sanctuary in Nevada. Sher Khan, Kendra, and Janiyah ended up at the Shambhala Sanctuary in California, owned and operated by actress Tippi Hedren. Keisha, the oldest female, after passing through the state's holding facility, was claimed by Carol Baskin of Big Cat Rescue. For Mike, losing Keisha to Carol Baskin became the bitterest parting of all. It is not the place he would have chosen to send his tiger because of how critical the Baskins have been of private owners. Less than a year after going to Big Cat Rescue, Keisha, whom Baskin called Tisha with a T, died by euthanasia. Big Cat Rescue documented Tisha's death on their website, writing that the decision to euthanize the cat came after a veterinarian discovered 15 bulging discs that were pinching her spinal cord and limiting her ability to walk. To this day, Mike disputes this account, which faults him directly for allowing the cat to become severely overweight. After the state seized his tigers, Mike fell into a depression that lasted over a year, he says. It was hard for him to get back to business as usual, and he let things go on his farm for quite some time. Today, Mike is in the business of breeding native species, such as deer and foxes, and at least one non-native species that is not coded in Ohio state law as a dangerous wild animal, namely a flightless ostrich-like bird from Australia called the emu. 
Besides Mike Stapleton, many high-profile Ohio exotics owners had their animals seized by state agents. Kenny Hetrick of Tiger Ridge in Toledo battled for four years to hold on to his animals and lost. After being seized by state officials, several of Hetrick's cats went to Big Cat Rescue in Tampa, Florida. Cindy Huntsman of Stump Hill Farm battled even longer with the state and met the same fate as Hetrick and Stapleton, losing numerous animals to seizure, including some of her non-human primates. Ohio State veterinarian Dr. Dennis Summers says that all of these owners had a fair chance to come into compliance with the Dangerous Wild Animals Act and either refused or failed to do so. It's our job in the interest of public safety. That's, that's really the key. In the interest of public safety, that you know, we have to at some point say, okay, we, we can't go anymore. Now we're going to go down a more aggressive uh, plan or course of action. And so that's, that's kind of how those cases have, have evolved over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, it's at, at the end, you know, you, you, you try, you know, it's not easy being a regulator. It's not easy in enforcing these laws. Um, I, I do think it takes a special kind of mindset to do it, but at the end of the day, we're, we try to be reasonable, um, but it, it doesn't always work with everybody, right? Since the Ohio Department of Agriculture began processing animal forfeitures and seizures in 2014, Dr. Summers estimates that somewhere between 250 and 300 animals have come through the temporary holding facility in Reynoldsburg. For some reason, the state does not keep detailed records of the animals moving through the facility, but over 50%, Dr. Summers says, have been alligators, while a minority have been mammalian predators like the ones slain in Zanesville. Dr. Summers says that many of the animals that arrive at the temporary holding facility show signs of inadequate care and nutrition. The common things that we would see would be um, generally a fair amount of the animals come in with some sort of a nutritional or metabolic abnormality, whether that's either they're overweight or they're underweight. Um, it's very unusual to have one come in that's more of sitting in your ideal weight uh, weight class. For example, it's not uncommon for bears to come in that are really heavy. Uh, they, they're, they're fed more of a normal human-type diet, a lot of carbohydrate treats, pies, donuts, cakes, and cookies, and things like that. And um, so they come in uh, more on the obese side. So, you know, you'd have to get them on a different plan of nutrition. So obesity in some of the bears was not uncommon. Uh, we typically would see some dental abnormalities, uh, fractured canine teeth. Uh, we've seen those on, on numerous occasions. Some animals would come in on the alligator side, would come in with metabolic bone disease because they weren't fed a proper uh, calcium and phosphorus-based diet. And so they would get softening of the bones. And so you would get some uh, skeletal uh, stunting, if you will, stunting of the, of the growth and their uh, there would be some some work there to try to get them back on a appropriate plane of nutrition, and you would occasionally get an animal come in with some sort of a uh, a sore or something like that on you know maybe a pressure sore or a, uh, a a wound that needed treated that wasn't really being dealt with. But by and large, I think most of our abnormalities were related to uh, either dental fractures. Uh, obesity or metabolic metabolic issues, those were by, by, by far and away the most common things that we would see. Ohio's assistant state veterinarian, Dr. Melissa Zimmerman, 
has also worked in the Dangerous Wild Animals program for years and reports that the bears that came into the holding facility often showed signs of acute psychological distress. We saw um, a lot of neurotic issues, um, yes. especially in bears. And that sure. comes from bears that are kept in confinement. And w when I'm talking of confinement, I'm speaking of them being kept in very small cages. At, we, there were even situations where we took bears that had been held their entire lives in dog cages and as a result um, suffered neurotic issues from that confinement. Overall, both Dr. Summers and Dr. Zimmerman feel that the Dangerous Wild Animals Act has been a success. And Dr. Summers says that the law has enabled the state to deal with all of the former big players in the exotic animal world. The most persistent dangerous animal problem in Ohio is with alligators, he says, and he hopes that the state will continue to fund the temporary holding facility in Reynoldsburg. That holding facility alone has been the key to a successful program because you had to have that, that facility that was secure that allow the animals to recover after chemical mobilization, to give us an opportunity to do a physical exam, provide vet care, and then safely, for the animal's sake, then move them to that receiving state. Um, and so that facility has, uh, has just been, has just been a, a wonderful blessing for the program, and we're thankful that, that we've been able to have it. Difficulties and questions remain. Without a doubt, the enforcement of the Dangerous Wild Animals Act since its passage in 2012 has been a success from the state of Ohio's point of view. Although prohibited reptiles and snakes remain somewhat elusive to state regulators, there are no more places like the Thompson Farm flying under the state's radar. From a public safety point of view, it is hard to see how that is not an improvement. But have the lives of Ohio's exotic animals improved as a result of the new law? Douglas Kaiser, a Yale Law School professor who specializes in animal law, thinks that while there are fewer exotic animals being held in captivity, and perhaps less overall suffering than before, the law's emphasis on public safety does not fundamentally alter the one-sided domination that human beings exert over non-human animals. Instead of private owners, now it's state officials who hold power over the more dangerous segment of God's creation. I think it's hard to see the exotic animal ownership regime as a market improvement in the legal status of the animals. I mean, it is true that the state is now recognizing them as a, a, a source of potential harm and threat that needs to be monitored and regulated. And, and in some sense, there's a kind of degree of acknowledgement and even respect that you could read into that law. Um, but on the other hand, in, you know, the animals, as I said, now they've been made completely legible to the state, like to the point of being implanted with a microchip under their skin. Um, and so, you know, in terms of like, is this a step toward liberation or a step toward further domination? I mean, you could argue, one could argue that this is a step even towards greater domination and, and control and engagement than existed before. 
Professor Kaiser's point hits home when looking at the photographs taken by the Marion Star newspaper during the state of Ohio's seizure of Mike Stapleton's five tigers in 2015. In one photograph, a tranquilized tiger lays limply on the ground inside its enclosure, its jaws slightly parted, its huge pink tongue lolling over its lethal teeth. Surrounding the sedated beast are various Department of Agriculture and wildlife agents, one a man with a clipboard in his hand, taking down notes. Another photograph shows several large men bent over the body of a rather corpulent tiger, heaving it onto the trailer in which it will be carried away. There is one photograph of Mike Stapleton by himself, hand on hip as he leans against an empty animal enclosure. The owner of these caged tigers clutches a copy of the state seizure warrant in his right hand. His downcast face makes him look resigned to his defeat. Stapleton's apparent loss of power may be the state of Ohio's gain, but captive animals are as vulnerable to human domination as ever. Their fates dependent, as ever, on our willingness to master and restrain ourselves. Life on the Ark was created, written, and narrated by Kelly Swope. Music and production by Benjamin Whitfield Thomas and Benjamin Chicoyan Jones. Artwork and web design by Claire Flath. Special thanks to Elizabeth Ann Burnett and Emily Westcott for reading anonymous public testimonies on the Dangerous Wild Animals Act. Coming up next on Life on the Ark, part six, lions, tigers, and AR-15s. The first thing that I think is, that's really striking in trying to unravel the the, significant, the significance of guns in this in this incident is really how much damage guns can do, right? Not just by harming bodies, uh, but also through uh, what we might call moral damage or trauma.